Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this podcast tells how the Crusades were inextricably linked with the Byzantine Empire. Now, we've heard about the extraordinary success of the First Crusade, which was originally intended to save the collapsing Byzantine Empire after its disastrous defeat at the Battle of Mansikert. Where we are now is in the golden age of the four Crusader states that were created after the Crusaders captured Jerusalem in 1099. These were the Principality of Antioch and the County of Edessa in the north, the County of Tripoli in the middle and the Kingdom of Jerusalem in the south. The Kingdom of Jerusalem considered itself the leader of the four states since it was the only one to be called a kingdom and of course it had the holy city of Jerusalem as its capital. We've heard about the Crusaders' struggles with the Muslim states all around them. The real reason why the Crusaders could survive was because the Muslim world was highly fragmented and couldn't unite against the Crusaders. Although, as we will discover, this was to change dramatically in the next 50 years. But from 1100 to 1150, there were separate emirates ranging from the Turkish Seljuks in Anatolia to Arab emirates in Aleppo, Damascus, Mosul and the largest Islamic power of all was the Fatimid Caliphate based in Egypt and we heard in the last episode how King Baldwin I of Jerusalem defeated several major Egyptian attacks in the 1100s. But what about Byzantium? The most striking thing for Byzantium was that it benefited hugely from the First Crusade. Not only had the Seljuk Turks been beaten back by the Crusaders and the Byzantine city of Nicaea, less than 100 miles from Constantinople, had been recaptured, but the extremely capable emperor, Alexius Komnenus, had used the Crusaders as a sort of advance guard behind which he recovered a large chunk of western Anatolia, making the Aegean again into a Byzantine lake. But there was one big problem, and this was the city of Antioch in Syria, which today is just within modern Turkey along the Syrian border. In this episode, we're going to look at how Byzantium tried to secure the return of this great city to Byzantine control. You'll remember that the Norman crusader Bohemond had seized it for himself in 1098. Why was it so important to the Byzantines? Well, it had always been a great Roman city, and it had survived during the Middle Ages as the second city in Byzantium after Constantinople. And the Byzantines wanted it back, as had originally been promised to them by the First Crusaders. As before, I'll read extracts from Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful history of the Crusades, which although written many years ago is still regarded as the classic narrative text on the Crusades. I'm reading a version that I've abridged to avoid some of the huge detail that Runciman goes into, but of course preserving his glorious prose. So, let's go. Hope you enjoy it. During and after the First Crusade, the Byzantine Emperor Alexius had consolidated his hold over the western third of Anatolia and over its northern and southern coasts. And had he only to deal with the Turkish princes, he could have kept his possessions intact. 
But groups of Turkomans were still seeping into the interior, where they and their flocks multiplied, and inevitably they overflowed into the coastal valleys to seek a gentler climate and richer pastures. Their coming inevitably destroyed the settled agricultural life of the Christians. Indeed, the weaker the princes became, the more unruly and dangerous to the empire were their nomad subjects. At the time of the Emperor Alexius's death in 1118, Turkish Anatolia was divided between the Seljuk Sultan Masud, who reigned from Konya over the southern centre of the peninsula, from the Sangarius to the Taurus Mountains, and the Danish Mend Emir Ghazi II, whose land stretched from the river Halles to the Euphrates. In spite of a Byzantine victory of Philomelion in 1115 and the subsequent attempted delineation of the frontier, the Turks had, during the following years, recaptured Phrygian Laodicea and penetrated into the Meander Valley and had cut off the road to Italia. At the same time, the Danish men's were pressing westward into Paphlagonia. The Emperor Alexius was planning a campaign to restore the Anatolian frontiers when his last illness supervened. The accession of his son, the Emperor John, brought new vigour to Byzantium. John, whom his subjects called Kalianes, John the Good, was one of those rare characters of whom no contemporary writer, with perhaps one exception, had anything derogatory to say. He was in his thirtieth year, a small, thin man, dark-haired, dark-eyed, and remarkably dark of complexion. His tastes were austere. He did not share in the delight taken by most of his family in literature and theological discussion. He was, above all, a soldier, happier on campaign than in the palace. But he was an able and just administrator, and despite his severity towards himself, generous to his friends and to the poor, and ready to appear himself in ceremonial splendour, should it be required. He was affectionate and forbearing to his family and faithful to his wife, the Hungarian princess Piriska, rechristened Irene, but she, though she shared in his austerities and his charities, had little influence over him. His only intimate friend was his grand domestic, a Turk called Oksak, who had been taken prisoner as a boy at the capture of Nicaea in 1097 and had been brought up in the palace. John's conception of his imperial role was high. His father had left him a strong fleet, an army that was made up from a medley of races but was well organised and well equipped, and a treasury that was full enough to permit an active policy. He wished not only to conserve the empire's frontiers, but to restore it to its ancient boundaries and to realise the imperial claims in northern Syria. John began his first campaign against the Turks in the spring of 1119. He marched down through Phrygia and recaptured Laodicea. Urgent business then recalled him to Constantinople, but he returned a month later to take Sozopolis and reopen the road to Italia. While he himself attacked the Seljuks in the west, he had arranged for an attack on the Turkish-Danish men's in the east. Constantine Gabras, Duke of Trebizond, took advantage of a quarrel between the Emir Ghazi and his son-in-law Ibn Mangu, a Turkish princeling established at Taranagi in 
Armenia to take up arms in support of the latter. But Ghazi, with Togrel of Militine as his ally, defeated and captured Gabras, who had to pay 30,000 dinars to ransom himself. A timely dispute between Ghazi and Togrel prevented the Turks from following up their victory. For the next few years, John was unable to intervene in Anatolia. These years saw an alarming growth in the power of the Turks, called the Danish Men's, in 1124, when Togrel of Melatini's stepfather, Balak the Otokid, was killed fighting in the Jezera, the Emir Ghazi invaded Melatini and annexed it to the delight of the native Christians there, who found his rule mild and just. Next, he turned westward and took Ankara, Gangra and Kastamuni from the Byzantines and extended his power down to the Black Sea coast. Constantine Gabras, thus cut off by land from Constantinople, took advantage of his isolation to declare himself independent ruler of Trebizond in 1129 on the death of the Armenian prince Thoros, Ghazi turned his attention to the south and the next year, in alliance with the Armenians, he slew Prince Bermond II of Antioch on the banks of the Jehan. Whatever views the Emperor John might hold about Antioch, he had no wish for it to pass into the possession of a powerful Muslim prince. His prompt invasion of Paphlagonia kept Ghazi from following up his victory. Fortunately, during these years, the Anatolian Seljuks were incapacitated by family disputes. In 1125, the Sultan Masud was displaced by his brother Arab. Masud fled to Constantinople, where the emperor received him with every honour. He then went on to his father-in-law, the Turkish-Danish men Ghazi, whose help enabled him, after a struggle of four years, to recover his throne. Arab, in his turn, sought refuge at Constantinople, where he died. Each year, from 1130 to 1135, the Emperor John campaigned against the Turkish-Danish men's. Twice his work was interrupted by the intrigues of his brother, Isaac, who fled from the Byzantine court in 1130 and spent the next nine years plotting with various Muslim and Armenian princes. And in 1134, the sudden death of the Empress recalled him from the wars. By September 1134, when the death of the Emir Ghazi eased the Turkish situation, he had reconquered all the lost territory except for the town of Gangra, which he recaptured next spring. Ghazi's son and successor, Mohammed, harassed by family squabbles, could not afford to be aggressive, and Masoud, deprived of Turkish Danish men's help, came to terms with the Byzantine emperor. With the Anatolian Turks thereby cowed, the Emperor John was ready to intervene in Syria. But first he had to protect the western half of his empire and in 1135 a Byzantine embassy arrived in Germany at the court of the western emperor Lothair. On John's behalf it offered Lothair large financial subsidies if he would attack Roger of Sicily. The negotiations lasted some months. Eventually Lothair agreed to attack the Norman Roger in the spring of 1137. 
The Hungarians had been defeated by the Byzantines in 1128 and the Serbians reduced to submission by a campaign in 1129. Therefore, the defences on the lower Danube were secure. The Pisans had been detached from their Norman alliance by the Treaty of 1126 and the Byzantine Empire was now on good terms with both Venice and Genoa. Therefore, in the spring of 1137, the Byzantine army, with the emperor and his sons at its head, assembled at Italia in Anatolia and advanced eastwards into Cilicia. The Byzantine fleet guarded its flank. The Armenians and the Franks were equally taken by surprise at the news of its approach. Leo, the Armenian, master now of the East Cilician Plain, moved up in an attempt to check the Byzantine progress by taking the Byzantine frontier fortress of Seleucia, but he was forced to retire. The Byzantine emperor swept on past Mersin, Tarsus, Adana and Mamistra, which all yielded to him at once. The Armenian prince relied on the great fortifications of Anazarbus to hold him up. Its garrison resisted for 37 days, but the siege engines of the Byzantines battered down its walls and the city was forced to surrender. Leo retreated into the high Taurus mountains where the Byzantine emperor did not trouble now to follow him. After mopping up several Armenian castles in the neighbourhood, the Emperor John led his forces southward past Issus and Alexandretta and over the Syrian gates into the plain of Antioch. On the 29th of August, he appeared before the walls of the great city and encamped on the north bank of the river Orontes. At this time, the crusader prince of Antioch was Raymond of Poitiers, and he hastened back to Antioch once he heard that the emperor's siege had begun. He was able to slip in with his bodyguard through the iron gate in the city wall, close under the citadel. For several days, the Byzantine siege machines pounded at the fortifications of Antioch. Raymond could hope for no help from outside, and he was uncertain of the temper of the population within the walls, given that many of them were Byzantine Greeks. It was not long before Raymond sent a message to the Byzantine emperor, offering to recognise him as suzerain if he might keep the principality of Antioch as imperial vicar. The Emperor John, in answer, demanded unconditional surrender. Raymond then said that he must consult King Fulk of Jerusalem, and letters were sent post-haste to Jerusalem. But King Fulk's reply was unhelpful. We all know, said the king, and our elders have long taught us, that Antioch was part of the empire of Constantinople until it was taken from the Byzantine emperor by the Turks, who held it for 14 years, and that the emperor's claims about the treaties made by our ancestors are correct. Ought we then to deny the truth and oppose what is right? When the king, whom he regarded as his overlord, offered such advice, Raymond could not resist longer. His envoys found the Byzantine emperor ready to make concessions. Raymond must come to his camp and swear a full oath of allegiance, becoming his man and giving him free access into the city and citadel. 
a compromise was found and it was agreed that if the Byzantines, with Frankish help, conquered Muslim Aleppo and the neighbouring Islamic towns, Raymond would hand back Antioch to the Byzantine Empire and receive instead a principality consisting of Aleppo, Shizar, Hama and Homs. Raymond acquiesced. He came and knelt before the Byzantine Emperor and paid him homage. The Emperor John did not insist then on entering Antioch, but the Byzantine standard was hoisted over the citadel. These negotiations showed the uneasiness of the Frankish attitude towards the Byzantines. The King Fulk's reply may have been dictated by the immediate needs of the moment, for he knew only too well that the Byzantines were not the main enemy of the Crusaders, who was instead the Emir Zengi, who was now in control of both Aleppo and Mosul, and indeed the Crusaders needed Byzantine support against him. His view was probably also the considered view of most Crusaders, despite all the propaganda of Bohemond, the more scrupulous Crusaders had always thought that the treaty made between Alexius and their fathers at Constantinople was valid. Antioch should have been returned to the Byzantine Empire, and Bohemond and Tancred, by violating the oaths that they had sworn, had forfeited any claims that they might have made. This was a more extreme imperialist view than even the Byzantine Emperor himself held. The imperial government was always realistic. It saw that it would be impractical and unwise to eject the Franks from Antioch without offering compensation. Moreover, the Byzantines liked to line their frontier with vassal states, whose general policy would be controlled by the Byzantine emperor, but who meanwhile would bear the brunt of enemy attacks. The Byzantine emperor therefore based his claims not on the treaty made at Constantinople in 1097, but on the treaty made with Bohemond at Duval. He demanded the unconditional surrender of Antioch as from a rebellious vassal, but he was prepared to let Antioch continue as a vassal state. His immediate need was that it should cooperate in his campaigns against the Muslims. It was now too late in the year for a campaign, so John, having asserted his authority, returned to Cilicia to finish off its conquest from the Armenians. When that was complete, John went into winter quarters in the Cilician Plain, where Baldwin of Marash came to pay him homage and to ask for his protection against the Turks. At the same time, a Byzantine embassy was sent to the Emir Zengi in order to give him the impression that the Byzantines were unwilling to start upon an aggressive adventure. Next February, by orders from the Byzantine Emperor, the authorities in Antioch suddenly arrested all the merchants and travellers from Aleppo and the neighbouring Muslim towns, lest they might report to their homes of the military preparations that they had seen. For, towards the end of March, the Byzantine army moved up to Antioch and was joined there by the troops of the Prince of Antioch and the Count of Edessa, together with a contingent of Templars. 
On the 1st of April, the Allies crossed into enemy territory and occupied Balat. On the 3rd, they appeared before Bizaz, which held out under its commander's wife for five days. Another week was spent in rounding up the Muslim soldiers in the district, most of whom took refuge in the grottos of El Baba, from whence they were smoked out by the Byzantines. The Emir Zengi hastily sent reinforcements to Aleppo so that when the Emperor John arrived before the walls on the 20th of April and launched an attack, he found it strongly defended. He decided not to undertake the ardours of a siege, but turned southward. On the 22nd, he occupied Athareb. On the 25th, Marat Anuman, and on the 27th, Kafatab. On the 28th, his army was at the gates of Shizar. Shizar belonged to another Arab emir, Abul Asakir, who had managed to preserve his independence from Zengi. Perhaps the Emperor John hoped that because of this, Zengi would not therefore concern himself with the city's fate. But its possession would give the Christians control of the middle of the Orontes Valley and would hinder Zengi's further advance into Syria. The Byzantines began their siege with great vigour. Part of the lower town was soon occupied and the emperor brought up his great catapults to bombard the upper town on its precipitous hill over the river Orontes. Latin and Muslim sources alike tell of the Byzantine emperor's personal courage and energy and of the efficiency of his bombardment. He seemed to be everywhere at once in his golden helmet, inspecting the machines, encouraging the assailants and consoling the wounded. The emir's nephew, Usama, saw the terrible damage done by the Greek catapults. Whole houses were destroyed by a single ball, while the iron staff on which the emir's flag was fixed came crashing down, piercing and killing a man in the street below. But while the emperor and his engineers were indefatigable, the Franks held back. Raymond feared that if Scheisar was captured, he might be obliged to live there in the front line of Christendom and to abandon the comforts of Antioch as he had promised. Meanwhile, the other crusader leader, Jocelyn, who privately hated Raymond, had no wish to see him installed in Scheisar and perhaps later, indeed, in Aleppo. His whispering encouraged Raymond's natural indolence and his mistrust of the Byzantines. Instead of joining in the combat, the two Latin princes spent their days in their tents playing at dice. The Byzantine emperor's reproaches could only goad them into perfunctory and short-lived activity. Meanwhile, the emir Zengi began to advance towards Shizar with his own army. Despite all the Emperor John's vigour, the great cliffs of Shizar, the courage of its defenders and the apathy of the Franks defeated him. Some of his allies suggested that he should go out to meet Zengi, whose army was smaller than the Christians, but he could not afford to leave his siege machinery unguarded, nor could he now trust the Crusaders. The risk was too great. He managed to take the whole of the lower city, and on the 20th of May, the Emir of Shizar sent two him offering to pay him a large indemnity and to present him with his best horses and silken robes and his two most precious treasures, a table studded with jewels and a cross set with rubies that had been taken from the Byzantine emperor Romanus Diogenes at the Battle of Mansikert 67 years before. He agreed further to recognise the Byzantine emperor as his overlord and to pay him a yearly tribute. 
The Emperor John, disgusted by his crusader allies, accepted the terms and on the 21st of May he raised the siege. As the Byzantine army moved back towards Antioch, the Emir Zengi came up towards Shizar, but apart from a few light skirmishes, he did not venture to interfere with the retreat. When the army reached Antioch, John insisted on making a ceremonial entry into the city. He rode on horseback with the Prince of Antioch and the Count of Edessa, walking as his grooms on either side. The Patriarch and all the clergy of the city met him at the gate and led him through streets hung with bunting to the cathedral for a solemn mass and on to the palace where he took up his residence. There he summoned Raymond and hinting that the prince had recently failed in his duties as vassal. He demanded that his army should be allowed to enter the city and that the citadel should be handed over to him. The future campaigns against the Muslims must, he said, be planned at Antioch and he needed the citadel to store his treasure and his war material. The crusaders were horrified while Raymond asked for time to consider the request. Jocelyn slipped out of the palace. Once outside he told his soldiers to spread a rumour round the Latin population of the city that the Byzantine emperor was demanding their immediate expulsion and to incite them to attack the Greek population of the city. Once the rioting was started, he rushed back to the palace and cried to the emperor John that he had come at the risk of his own life to warn him of the danger that he ran. There was certainly some tumult in the streets and unwary Greeks were indeed being massacred. In the east there is no telling where a riot may end and John wished neither that the Greeks in the city should suffer nor that he himself should be cut off in the palace with only his bodyguard and his main army on the far banks of the river Orontes. Moreover, he had learnt that, thanks to Zengi's diplomacy, the Anatolian Seljuks had invaded Cilicia and raided Adana. He saw through Jocelyn's trickery, but before he could risk an open breach with the Crusaders, he must be absolutely sure of his communications. He sent for Raymond and Jocelyn and said that for the moment he would ask for no more than a renewal of their oath of vassaldom and that he must now return to Constantinople. He left the palace to rejoin his army and at once the princes stopped the riot. But they were still nervous and very anxious to recapture the emperor's goodwill. Raymond even offered to admit imperial functionaries into the city, guessing rightly that the emperor John would not accept so insincere an offer. Shortly afterwards, the emperor John said goodbye to Raymond and Jocelyn with an outward show of friendship and complete mutual mistrust. He then led his army back to Cilicia. Thus ended the first Byzantine attempt to take Antioch. The next attempt came in the spring of 1142 when the Emperor John led the Byzantine army again across Anatolia to Italia. This time Raymond was truly frightened. It was certain that the Byzantine emperor was now determined to follow up his demands with force and it seems that the native Christians were ready to help the Byzantines. The crusaders tried to gain time. Raymond prevaricated by saying that he had to consult his own vassals in Antioch as well as King Fulk in Jerusalem. 
But in the end, he was forced to say to the Emperor John that there was no alternative but war. However, in March 1143, when Emperor John's preparations for an attack on Antioch were being made, he took a brief holiday to go hunting wild boar in the Taurus Mountains. In the course of a hunt, he was accidentally wounded by an arrow. He paid little attention to the wound, but it became septic, and soon he was dead of blood poisoning and the Byzantine army returned in confusion to Constantinople. So, in the end, Byzantine ambitions to retake Antioch had come to nothing, and in so doing, they had further alienated the Crusader states. Another step had been taken on the path to war between the Byzantines and the Crusaders. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. One point I would just mention is that, in my opinion, the failure of the Byzantines to retake Antioch was really because the Byzantine army was relatively weak at this time. I think Stephen Runciman is too generous about the strength of the Byzantine army. And one of the main points in my own book, The Byzantine World War, is that after the Battle of Mansica, the Byzantines lost the Cappadocian military class, which had been the core of their own army, a bit like the Prussians were the core of the German army in the First World War. After Mansica, the Byzantine army is really only a collection of mercenaries, and I think that's why Byzantium ceases to be an effective military power. By the way, my book is now out on Amazon in audiobook if you're interested. As always, I'd be hugely grateful if you left any ratings on this podcast since it helps to promote it to more listeners. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear how the Crusaders met with their first great defeat, which would lead to the Second Crusade.